This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Ari Bergman. Very excited to welcome Ari to the show. I am very excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Ari, as I mentioned to you leading up to this program, our goal through this podcast is to introduce the broader Jewish world to a wide variety of Jewish personalities who at least I think are interesting, inspiring, compelling figures for others to learn about. And of course, not only the personalities, but the work that they're engaged in, their individual unique passions and dreams for the Jewish people. To contextualize that, I'd like to just begin by learning a little bit about who you are, where you come from. I think someone listening to your voice for more than one or two seconds will note that you're not a Native American. Uh, Is it true? I thought that I have such a, like a Native American accent. You may have worked on it, but, but Ari, I'm sorry to say it still <laughs> lingers. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. How did you grow up? Okay, I come from Sao Paulo, Brazil, born and bred, a family of two children. Our family was not observant. I was a traditional Jew. I went in Brazil to Jewish school. Jewish schools were the norm where you send kids to be able to get a normal education that there was no risk of being killed along the way. And I was there in Brazil. One of my kids decided to go to a yeshiva, which for me was something very new, but I thought it would be cool to follow. So actually, not religious as I was, through the path, I decided to learn more about Judaism, what it meant to be Jewish, and then to join my friend at the yeshiva in Brazil. I was there up to the age of 16, and then my parents sent me to the yeshiva in Baltimore, to near Israel. I went there to yeshiva for four years. I actually also went to college. I got my CPA. From there, I went to Israel. I learned in two great yeshivot, Ponovich and Hebron. I got married to a Brazilian girl from Rio de Janeiro. And then we lived in Jerusalem for a few years. And then I came back to America. First, I worked as an accountant at PwC, but at that time was only Pricewaterhouse. And then I left to the world of trading and finance. I joined Drexel, and that was back in 1987, a long time ago. So that's basically 30 years ago, doesn't wow. look like it. And then from there, I went to Drexel, Bankers Trust. I was one of the people who first involved with derivatives. We helped create and develop that market. In 1997, I left to open my own firm, specializing in trading derivatives, managing money, and managing risk. And that's what I do till today. Wonderful. And I'd like to delve deeper into a number of those things. But just to start by backing up again, what was Jewish life in Brazil uh, like growing up? Was it a community of post-war escapees or survivors? Was it a, a place of a lot of Jewish resources? It sounds like there was a, a place where you could go to learn a little bit more. What, what was available in that? In period? my time, listen, today changed a lot, but in my time, basically, there were three basic segments of the community. There was the Sephardi community. They were coming from the Arab countries into Brazil, and that was a growing community. And today is a strong community. They have a very much of an outreach program, and Jewish life is thriving. In my time, there was the beginning, not much there. Then the Ashkenazi were divided into two groups. There was a group that came pre-Second World War, and those Jews were mostly completely assimilated. 
they came to Brazil, they became part of large Brazilian society. The post-Second World War survivors, Poland, Hungary, some of them from Germany, and that were my parents. They were not observant anymore. They were close-knit. And that community of survivors, some of them were traditional, some of them were not traditional. My family was traditional, but a community of survivors. When I was a kid, I did not know actually anybody from my father's friends who had a grandparent. I thought a grandparent is a non-Jewish thing. Only non-Jews had grandparents. What a statement of the times. And I think there are many Americans who, who had the same sort of experience. So your parents were both survivors? Yes. My wow. father passed away and my mother, she's still alive and well, but they're both survivors. What brought them to Brazil, of all places? See, my father was in Germany as a survivor. He actually was able to rebuild himself, but he couldn't live in Germany. He didn't think the right thing, so he came to, back to Brazil. My mom came first after the war to America, but her family was in Brazil. So they moved to Brazil and they met and got married. So fast forwarding just a little bit, you ended up flying to America and I guess leaving your family. That's sort of like Abraham, in a sense, you left your family to come and study. What was that experience like? It was very new and strange, right? They came to a new society and I did not know English. I'll tell you a very funny story. I came to Yeshiva back exactly 40 years ago, 1977. And wow. today I met somebody who was there on that first day. So I came, I remember it was a whole adventure. I flew myself straight from the summer in Brazil, a hot summer, basically a hundred degrees, come to America. It was a freezing winter in 1977 because the, the seasons are opposite and there was tons of snow. I come to Yeshiva my first day and uh, I didn't know English. So we had to find somebody who knew Hebrew. So this guy we met today remembers that they found the rabbi there who knew Hebrew, gave me the directions, and they got the boy to take me to my room. And the yeshiva was a large campus, so I actually had to walk in the snow to see my room. The guy brings me back to the administration building and says, okay, now you take your stuff. And I couldn't express myself. I said, take my stuff? I don't even know where my room is, meaning everything looks white. I never saw snow before. I remember it took me who knows how long. Looking back, it took me, you know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half to get. I was soaked, carrying my luggage. I finally found my room. I go to my room, and the whole she was away. It was a weekend off, so people were out. So there was no electricity, no heating, and no food. And I was soaking wet. And I realized that in my room, I didn't have a bed because I weren't prepared to have it. So I come in, and I thought to myself, I was 15 years old. I thought, you know, something, it's not for me. At that time, we had a budget to make a phone call once a month. And I had enough money to make the phone call. And my parents told me, listen, we're giving you a round-trip ticket. You can go back home and don't worry about it. So I thought, you know something, I'm going to go back to Brazil and give up. I had enough. So I just, there was a bed from one of the kids who weren't there, and I just lay down on the bed, and I look ahead on the wall, and there was a bookshelf. And I remember seeing a book called In the Beginning by Chaim Potok. And I didn't know English, but for some reason, I told me the book. I opened the book, and in the first page, there was a quote from the Bechilt in Hebrew. Call at Chalot Kashot. All the beginnings are hard. Wow. I closed the book, said, God, I got the message. And I <laughs> say, I will stick by it. And I was happy. This was the first message. And I'll never forget. This is exactly from today, a little more than 40 years. It was in January. So it's 40 years ago, 1977. It's amazing. I guess that was the only Hebrew inscription in that book. And that- For sure. It's a book in English. It's a famous book by Chaim Potter called In the Beginning. But that quote was the only quote. And sometimes you get a message and you hear, okay, I'll stick by it. So it sounds like things 
improved from that point forward. Obviously, you learned English. You became engrossed in in the yeshiva studies. What was that experience like for you over those next couple of years? Was that a transformative period in terms of your studies? Yes, I studied and I started learning. I, I was somebody who comes from a non-religious background. So clearly, I came and I joined the yeshiva behind. I was not as advanced as everybody else. I was actually well behind, but I was able to learn and I studied and I loved it and I grew. I became actually very close to the Rosh Yeshiva. The Rosh Yeshiva was somebody very important and an older gentleman who was a giant in Torah. I became very close to him and I developed a relationship and I was able to learn and I actually dedicated myself to learning and it was a transformative experience that I look back with much love and uh, sympathy and I think that was a great time. Did you consider at any point making a career out of that and going into the rabbinics or education? Obviously, you ended up choosing the path of, of business, although as we'll discuss shortly, uh, you've certainly synthesized that with quite a bit of education at this point as well. But was there ever a thought of professionalizing your Jewish life as opposed to becoming an accountant and ultimately a trader? I was not focused on the professional aspect of it. I was focusing on growing myself as a Jewish person. I love learning. Did I see learning as a profession or not? I thought it was completely different like today. Learning, growing, getting close to Hashem is part of life, is not a profession. It's way, it's way beyond. It's an existential question, not a professional question. So I always saw it as existential, perhaps not professional, but my parents wanted me to go to school anyway, so it was not even an option. Were there certain areas of study that were particularly attractive to you that you enjoyed or that you really endeavored to become an expert in? At that time, I enjoyed, which is still today, studying the Talmud. I dedicated myself to studying the Talmud, to understanding the logic of the Talmud and how that logic was understood throughout generations. Because the Talmud is an amazing book. It's an amazing work, not even the book, that was read and reread in different ways by the different generations. And that's what I specialized, completely focused on that. Not so much on halacha, not in the actual rulings, but in the logic and how that thought process evolved. Now, from knowing you a little bit outside of this podcast, I am aware that you also have an interest or at least have had an interest in some of the more esoteric teachings of Judaism. Is that still something that draws you? Was that something that you got into as a, as a younger man? Tell us a little bit about that. So the concept of esoteric, existential, mystical learnings, I had a big attraction and approach to it while I was in Brazil because the yeshiva was a Chabad kind of yeshiva. So all the Hasidut works of the Tanya, I was very versed with that. When I came to Baltimore, the yeshiva was very focused on the exoteric, i.e. learning the Talmud, not focus on any Jewish thought, no focus on mysticism, no focus on anything esoteric. And that's what happened for that time when I came to Baltimore, all the way to when I was in Israel and I came back to America, I devoted, focused very little on anything esoteric or anything of Jewish thought of mysticism, almost nothing. Although it seems like you've given many classes, sort of a lay leader and teacher that touch on many of those topics, specifically the teaching of the Maharal. Is a thing that I developed after I got married. After I got married and I knew a lot of the Talmud, I think it's extremely important to have a very strong basis in the Talmud, in what's called esoteric, the basic Jewish learning. And then I developed later. 
that's something after I got married. My brother-in-law is Rabbi Hartman, who is a great expert in the morale. I was under his influence. I was introduced to Rabbi Moshe Shapira. They became very close to him. But that was all post-marriage. Have you ever struggled? Because I know that you are someone who's deeply invested in Talmud study. And in particular, you've engaged, as I think we'll get to a little bit in academic Talmud study as well. Have you ever found a difficulty synthesizing that rationalist approach with the mystical or esoteric leanings that you might have absorbed later? in your education? I think my goal and my mission in life, my greatest pleasure is synthesizing, creating some kind of a synergy between the rational Talmudic learning, academic studies, and the mystical thought. I think that that synthesis between the two shows how things are balanced and how things inform each other and how basically there's a larger picture. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I mean, what is that larger picture? How does that all come together? Seemingly disparate, if not even conflicting field, according at least to many. All my classes are always focused in three basic components. The rational, logical approach, which is the Talmudists and that school, combining with the mystical schools, which are the esoteric learning, and balanced with academic studies, which is in the larger conversation and also historical accuracy and to be as historical and as scientifically based as possible. And I believe that this is the greatness of Jewish learning. This last aspect, when you talk about academic studies, study, the university perspective, where did that become introduced into your stream of consciousness, your own studies, the more of a classical yeshiva upbringing? How did that become a factor? This became a factor later in life. I'm an avid book collector. I love Jewish old antique books because they are the reality. I have like a romantic relationship. I think that the Jewish book is not only a content, which is intellectual, but is an expression of love. People devoted their lives. And these books survive great persecutions, pogroms. So I had developed that love to the books. And I thought to myself, why don't I decide to learn more about the history of those books? So I decided, I went and I applied to Columbia University for a master's in liberal studies with a focus in Jewish studies. My goal at that time was to study from somebody, to learn from somebody called Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, Salomon Professor of Jewish History at Columbia University, one of the greatest minds on the early modern period the Amsterdam Society and the Conversos, which was very much talked to me because it's the beginning of Brazil. So I joined Columbia University. And when I come there for my first semester and I had to choose a class, I realized that Joseph Chaim Roshalmi wasn't sabbatical. <laughs> so I was right. stuck. Okay, I have what I'm going to study. I had to go. I'm not going to take it. I'm coming for Jewish studies. So then I realized there was somebody called David Weiss Halifdi who was teaching critical Talmud methods at Columbia University. And I never heard of it. And then I started Googling at that time was not exactly Google, but maybe Yahoo. And I realized that he was a great academic Talmudist I never heard of. So I actually invited a friend of mine. I was afraid to go, how does Talmud in academia, how does that fit in? So I went with a friend of mine to the first class and was truly loved the first sight. We started arguing and was an argument from beginning to end in class. And I had a fellow student at that time who she said, this is love at the first time. These guys will be together forever. <laughs> and I developed a very close relationship to David Weissalivni, which is the Israel Prize in Talmud. And he's an amazing scholar on academic approaches to Talmud. I finished my master's under Yerushalayim on Jewish history. And I decided to pursue a PhD. At that time, I was debating between Jewish history or Talmud, comparative religions. I decided to go with Halivni and to work under him on 
on the formation of the Bavli or the Talmud, and I actually got my PhD. And I did a lot of comparative work in different religions, meaning I'm able to teach Islam, Tibetan Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and I have some touches of Hinduism in the Christianity. So I got my PhD in comparative religion, and my dissertation was on the formation of the Talmud, of the process of redaction, incorporating all the academic tools. And I taught at Columbia. I was a fellow at Harvard, and now I teach as a visiting professor at the University of Pennsylvania. How has this very eclectic academic approach been received in the more traditional communities in which you live and perhaps have done a good deal of teaching, again, as a layperson? Has this been well-received? Has it sparked controversy? Has it sparked interesting debate? Have you been able to educate people or to change people's perspectives about certain areas of study? I think that this has been extremely, for me, helpful to be able to integrate. And I think that learning in the traditional sense with the academic tools is much richer, much deeper, it's much more real. And I think the combination is extremely important. And thank God the reception has been actually excellent. People, the first time is a shock, but once they start getting involved, they realize that not only is not a contradiction, but just the opposite. They make learning much more real, much more 21st century. Actually, I'm now in the work of publishing my book. My dissertation has been translated into Hebrew, published by the Magnus Press of Hebrew University. And I'm working also my academic book in English, which will hopefully be published by the University of Pennsylvania. It's interesting because very often traditional communities might feel at tension with academic communities, might feel that there's sort of a deconstructionist, threatening, sort of hostile to religion coming from those corners. It sounds like that has not been your experience. And it sounds like you've had success in harmonizing these different elements. Yes, not only harmonizing, but combining and synthesizing. I think that uh, I have great relationships with the academic community and great relationships with the traditional community. And actually, we're now opening, we're going to start next semester, a periodical group of combining a young yun, a daily learning, combining academic and traditional all together and having these working groups working at least four times a year together, taking one specific portion of the Talmud, each one coming from Harvard for Yale from Brisk and from Yeshiva University and from Baltimore, different approaches and combining it together. And then on Agada, from the mystical schools, from the mystical yeshivot, from the academics, from the more new wave thinkers, from the Hasidic thinkers, all creating a conversation together. Each one will present his own approach to a sugya that everybody has learned. It'll be groups to discuss together and to see how to combine and integrate. You know, I asked you before about the reception in the traditional communities of your academic studies on the reverse angle. What's been the reception in the academic circles of your traditional leaning? There tends to be a caricature of academics being dismissive of or cynical towards more traditional religious figures. My experience has been actually excellent. I think all deep mutual respect that people realize that we can learn from each other. My experience has been, thank God, extremely good and well respected and received by both both communities. And I think that what happens is that most of them can't understand each other. They talk different languages. If you have somebody who's well-versed and respected and a scholar who knows both, that bridge is extremely valuable. And my classes always in academia are combining the two and they got extremely successful. So we incorporate and combine traditional approaches with academic approaches and also in a larger sense. How does that fit in within the larger universe and of different disciplines and different approaches? Not only Jewish. 
I want to ask you a little bit about your day job and what you're doing to earn a living for your family. But the first question that comes to mind as you're talking is, how do you find the time to do all of these things? You mentioned a job that I'm sure is very demanding and then pursuing a PhD and teaching and another area, I guess, where balance is really required. But how have you struck that balance? Because I believe that the most important operative word that you have to use is the word called consilience. Consilience is when you have different disciplines, different activities of your life, not only did you synthesize, not only did you harmonize, but they actually inform each other to basically go into something which is called a higher system. It's a consilient system. And I'm a believer that this is what we are here for combining academic with traditional, esoteric and exoteric. Your lay life, your professional life that you're trying to do to become a very successful professional with a deep world of thinking and learning. That consilience allows you to have something called an emergent experience, that you emerge into a higher being. And that's what I do. It's interesting. My area of derivatives is something, the area of finance of derivatives, that the world attributes, the world of options, the world of swaps, the world attributes to 1973 to work of several scholars, some of them being Myron Scholes, Fisher Black, Bob Merton, all these guys. And the truth is that derivatives is something that existed from way before. Actually, the first book on finance is a book written in 1688 about the trading of the company of the West Indies in Amsterdam. It's a book written in Spanish and it's called Confusion de Confusiones, Confusion about Confusions. <laughs> the book preceded any other book by almost 150 years. So it's actually more than 150 years. It's 1668 to 1758. So that book is way earlier than anything else. It's a visionary. It's one of the 10 best books ever written on the financial markets. What was 1758? 1758 is the euphoria of the market by McKay which is the second book, the first one around 1758. So this book was 1688, not 1668, but 1688, Confusion de Confusiones, and it's written about options and derivatives way before calculus, right? Calculus is like is a Newton, but later. But that book is a book that defines and now the financial markets, one of the best books ever, and was written by a religious Jew. His name was Joseph Penso de la Vega. And the book is a 400-page book where 320 is about the Talmud. The book was translated into English by Harvard. They made it into an excerpt because the translator decided that he is not a Talmudist, so he couldn't add much to the Talmud part of it. But taking that trading and combining with the Talmud makes the book that much special. So I think that the time you'll find, because you realize that these things are not different compartments, they integrate. You are a better investor professional because you have your academic, religious, spiritual side. And I believe that you are better in your academic, intellectual, spiritual pursuits because you have a very strong backing on the professional side of the real world. People I, th I think people would be fairly surprised to learn that the Talmud has anything to do with trading, derivatives, options, complex financial instruments. Can you give us just maybe one example of how that expressed itself, how Talmudic thinking or reasoning perhaps might inform that it's, world? It's not Talmudic thinking, right? By the way, the book is a must. If anybody knows Spanish, you should get it. The book is called Confusion de Confusiones. The English one, it doesn't bring the Talmud. But there you have 320 pages to show how how the Talmud allows you to understand. What he says is if you learn the Talmud, you could make sense out of the financial markets. But clearly, I think that what financial markets are, 
It's a collective conversation between professionals. It's an emerging system. It's a system of collective. The Talmud is there. The Talmud is not one rabbi. It's a virtual conversation that goes into place and draws you in. So it's a very similar system to the financial markets. So forget about one specific Talmudic idea. The Talmud is the collective voice of Judaism, of the Jewish scholars, while the financial markets is the collective voice of financial professionals. Interesting. So there's really a thematic parallel there. Each is in within its own context is a dialectic among experts, among those who are qualified to venture an opinion. And ultimately the truth, so to speak, emerges from each of those conversations. Right. And they create one emergent system, which is a system which is concealing to each and every one of them. What would you suggest? I know there are many young Jewish people who are looking to be successful professionally, certainly financially, many of whom get into different realms of business, uh, whether it's a mathematically based trading approach or whether it's just business in general. I'm sure you speak to young people all the time. What kind of advice do you offer them as people are embarking on professional careers, especially in the business arena? I'll tell you, the Chovot of Avot, one great book, great work on Jewish thought, writes the following, that when you pursue a profession, a way to succeed, you should look into three things. Number one, learn about yourself. What are your strengths and weaknesses, both nature and nurture? What are you good at? What's your nature to know what are you good at? Second thing is look at yourself, what you have to enjoy and thrive doing. Because God gave people the capabilities and so does give the joy to do it. And then try to channel those two in a profession that has financial potential. And if you trust in God, if you do your best, that Hashem will be with you, Hashem will be with you. So the idea is trust in yourself and by that trust in God. That double trust will make you succeed. And the way to do it is follow Jewish wisdom. Look at what what you're good at, what you actually enjoy doing, and apply these two channeling into a market or into a workplace or discipline or field that has potential. And the truth is, if you do something well with passion, everything has potential. What do you enjoy most about the work that you do? I'm sure that you can't do this kind of a job in an intensive and very competitive arena. You must find joy in some of these aspects. What about the day-to-day aspects of trading and the markets do you enjoy? You have to understand information to apply to the markets. You have to understand the psychology of the markets. You have to be able to take information, to understand information, to process information, and then taking the psychology of the markets, information, combining it together, and using the tools of the rivers to come up with a way of expressing it. It's very thriving because you could find something people don't understand, they don't see. You see something that people don't see, and you're able to express and take value. And the market allows you to be right or wrong. And everyone can tell you, you just can't fool yourself. And also, I think it's a great lesson in life because you realize that as much work as you do, you can never cross every T and every I. You feel that you are in the hands of God all the time. So that feeling of vulnerability and knowing that you did your best, but you need to rely on him creates a relationship which is very healthy and very thriving and very exciting on a daily basis. It seems like more than ever, people are feeling today very unstable, very insecure, even while we may live in a time of great prosperity, ostensibly. But I guess given the political realities in in the world, it seems like there's a lot of insecurity. Do you see that expressed in your day-to-day job? And is that something that underscores the need for this trust in a higher transcendent being, if you will? Right. I think that in the world that we live, which is so unstable, so many changes, and changes what sometimes it took a decade 
can take a month. I think it destabilizes people and gives people a sense of vulnerability. And also it's the world that has so many things going on that you need a meaning, you need a narrative. The relationship with God gives you both. It gives you, number one, a sense of security, not fearing. You realize that this is a world of opportunities. The opportunities are great. And if you don't fear, if you trust in God, it's something so valuable. In the daily prayers, we thank God because you are the kind that your kindness is forever. And your pity and your mercy never stops. And therefore, we end, it allows us to always rely on you. God is so great that you can always rely on him. In other words, you have somebody good, but sometimes he's reliable, sometimes not. He's worthless. God is a being because he's always kind and there's no limits. You can always rely on him. Mm -hmm. He's always there for us. That feeling allows you to take the world's challenges as an opportunity. Very, very, very valuable. You don't have to fear and you have to go. And I think also the world needs a narrative. You have to understand what things mean. What are you here for? Give meaning, give sense. And God and the Torah give you. So they give you both the trust and takes away the fear and gives you the meaning of a world which is so confused. Have you found empirically that in dealings with those who have that base, that underlying sense of narrative, sense of trust, that you experience them differently than you experience those who don't have that sort of basis to them? As an academic, I tell you, for me to give an answer would have to be statistical <laughs> sampling in its actually. I can't tell you. I can only tell you. How about you anecdotally? <laughs> anecdotally, I think it's for sure true. People are happier. I think that once you have a message of trust in God and use the Torah to inform you the meaning of things, people are much more accomplished and people are much more balanced and people are much happier. That's it. And for me, I can tell you my personal experience. The answer is absolutely yes. We'll, we'll substantiate that through statistical modeling for the next podcast. That's it. <laughs> Are you just turning briefly and wrapping up? Tell me a little bit about what you're involved with outside of, of course, the financial world and that professional arena. And then, of course, outside of this academic world of learning and teaching, are there other causes that you find passion in? Are there other things that animate you? Are there other areas within the Jewish world that you really look at and say, we need to accomplish something there? We need to repair something there? Where do you invest? some of your energies philanthropically and otherwise? My view, uh, what I love is guiding and teaching and helping the young generation because it's the future of Jewish people. So I do spend a lot of time and energy with that. And also I do believe in disrupting social systems and norms. And I think it's very important to disrupt that. Part of the disruption, I thought, is the conversation within the academic, the traditional world, to bring it together in the world that people can learn from each other and make each other better. And also, part of it is the idea of approaching, of allowing, exposing the larger Jewish community to the beauty, the truth, and the depth of Torah. That's something that I'm very involved, which is outreaching, but outreaching the young generation to bring them meaning to make the future of the Jewish people better. And on the disruptive societies, it's Shemitah. I mean, one of the things I love is the sabbatical in Israel. And to create a new norm in society, that Shemitah becomes not just a religious involvement, involvement in the country, it becomes a question of identity, of how Shemitah, how the sabbatical year that the Torah gives us, allows us to form a society which is deep, which has meaning, which is social value, that's something that I do, and to use all the tools to create social change outside of the organized institutional process. Not everyone is going to either by limitation of ability or 
life circumstances, inclination. Not everyone is going to go for a PhD in academic Talmud. Not everyone is going to be able to create this consilience, as you described it, on the higher level academic perspective. How can people create and perpetuate this kind of social change or this kind of, again, synthesis, or as you called it, consilience, higher emergence, if they don't have the ultimate tools of grand academic study? Are there ways that people at a lower level, we'll call it, can engage in a similar or parallel process? In my view, it's very clear that God gave the Torah. Each one heard in his own voice. Like the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, Rabbi Ezefluria says, each one has his own version of Torah. You don't understand that the idea is learn, make Torah part of your life, integrate, be in the moment, seize the moment, the opportunities come to you. If you want to change your life, you want to change the world, you have to have your own perspective, be aware and the opportunities come to you. God is talking to us all the time. We just have to hear the opportunity. We always cry for opportunities when that's not the case. The opportunity is always there. We just have to have the wisdom and the inspiration to seize them. So if you learn, you make it a goal to say, you know something, I want to make the world better. I want to hear my mission and to execute. It will be obvious to each one what the mission is. And you don't need academic degrees. You just need the desire, the relation, and you have to leave the moment. Well, I think that's an incredibly inspiring and profound message. Uh, it's something that's relatable to someone on any level. And I thank you for that. And I think that's a wonderful place to close. Thank uh, you very much. It was a great opportunity. And listen, learn and find a better life. And uh, you'll be better and the world will be better. And Ari, if anyone listening is interested in learning a little bit more about your work and your interest and your passions, uh, is there somewhere that they could go online to do that? Yeah, I do have a website. It's called AriBergman.com and we have a podcast with our lessons, lectures, and etc. And Google is a great tool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Ari Bergman. And I'm sure we'll have many people looking that up. Thank you very, very much, Ari. Thank you very much, Amai. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.